Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 21 of Music Is Not a Genre. M, ah, man, I had it. Wait a minute. M, X, G. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Please support this podcast at patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre. It's going to say that one more time. Please support this podcast at patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre. Your support means the world to me, and now is a pretty crucial time for it. Uh, so I would appreciate any consideration you have. You can get in for as little as $5 a month. You can also support at anchor.fm slash musicisnotagenre if you prefer the audio version. My public hub is youtube.com slash at music is not a genre. My website is nickdematio.com where you get everything of this podcast and well beyond. And of course, please listen to and support my band Rec at recarea.bandcamp.com. All of these links are below, by the way. And many of them, I think all of them are also at the end of the uh, podcast here if you're watching. Let's get right to it. Very excited to kick off the uh, sort of official second half of season five with part three here of my Beatles series, and that is called The Beatles Part Three Integrated Innovators. So, a couple of things off the bat before we dive into this. And I can't say any of these are my favorites for the six-part series that I'm doing, but this one would come close, I would think. But let's, let's get two things out of the way first. First of all, you might be asking yourself, as a devoted Beatles fan and a, and a man who is in a Beatles band and has recorded covers of Beatles music, wouldn't you think that I would be more representative of their eras with what I'm wearing? And, and I'll tell you why I'm not. This is the only piece of Beatles clothing that I own. This t-shirt right here. And for those of you just listening, it's a gray Beatles t-shirt with black The Beatles on it and kind of a washed out white Apple uh, from Apple Records, Apple Core. And I bought it because I needed a Beatles t-shirt for the band. Uh, it, it's not to say that I wouldn't get more Beatles t-shirts, uh, but that's, you know, I'm very picky about t-shirts. Um, if you haven't noticed, and I got this one because of the ones I saw is the one I like the most. And so you're probably going to see it three more times at least is all I'm saying. Now back to this actual episode, why that title, why integrated innovators? Because, because I think this era represents the Beatles at their most integrated, the, the, the highest level 
of both camaraderie and work in the studio and, and writing and all of that, where they came together as a foursome, as a twosome, as a threesome, depending on who was doing what, but whatever was needed to make the best music that they could possibly make as a group, even when it was one person writing a song, people you know would enthusiastically contribute. And it's not to say that they didn't subsequently do that very, very often, but this was really the strongest period for that. And it's also the period uh, where they really kicked off the, their kind of strongest, again, period of innovation. And I don't need to say much about that. I will get into it in some when we talk about the three albums we're talking about this week, Rubber Soul, Revolver, and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and then Tangentially, Yesterday and Today, which I'll get into, the, the U.S. album. I'll be talking a little bit about their studio innovations, et cetera, et cetera, and even their songwriting innovations and, and the way they arrange songs and all of that. But really for the beginning, just to say that even though they would do more, of course, and be just as creative in, in different ways and in sometimes in the same ways in future albums, these three albums are really where all of that solidified, where they found their full identity as people who will put music first, even over and above playing to fans, and certainly over and above the, uh, you know, the, the business of it all and the money, which at that point they, you know, didn't need anyway, or, or you know, maybe they did need it, but not quite as much. This is, I would say, and I'll say it off the top and I'll get more into it at the end. This is probably my favorite overall period of the Beatles. I won't say necessarily that this contains my favorite album. That changes from year to year or decade to decade, whatever you want to say. And I'm not 100% sure what my favorite album is right now. It has been for a while, the White Album. I feel like that's starting to shift, and at some point that will change. And maybe it's one of these. I don't know. But I will say that as far as song output and recording and everything you could possibly think of, this to me was the was the meat of their career. Uh, you know, and, and that's also... They, they had so much, you know, sonic experimentation and innovation they they made it their mission at this point and they were getting kind of burnt out from doing movies and doing uh you know the tours and from press issues one of which I'll get into later on because I think it's relevant not just to this Beatles period but to today and decided that they needed to take a breath and certain things fell through and didn't happen, et cetera, that uh, afforded them that opportunity. But I think they would have done it anyway. They took a breath and said, we're just going to stop touring for who knows how long. We know. I don't know if they really knew. And we're not going to make music that needs to be a perfect representation of what it sounds like to have four people on stage. We're going to use the studio for what it is, which is another tool. And become, you know, just studio heads, uh, wizards, you know, which is which is a lot of where I live as well. So that's one of the reasons why I appreciate this period. And even though this this was a huge leap forward, as were you know most of what they did, everything they did was a leap forward. Some huge leap forward. And yes, this period, you know, we think of Rubber Soul, oh, that's when they started all this. You can hear some of that in the album Help. So it's a little more gradual than we realize. And when you realize 
that Help and Rubber Soul came out in the same year. You see that they were heading in that direction anyway, but it really kind of, you know, blew up Rubber Soul, and and I'll get into where I think it peaked and et cetera, et cetera, as we go on. So let's just get into the albums right now, starting, yes, with December 1965 with Rubber Soul. So the name... As you may know, and again, I'm not coming at this from somebody who's going to uh, educate you on every detail of the Beatles. Uh, there's enough out there to read, etc. If you already know this, stick around and enjoy the story again. And if you don't, then great. Uh, you've learned something new. They were batting around the phrase uh, plastic soul, which was them to them kind of meant like, uh, you know, white boy soul, like that kind of thing, where it was in i won't say inauthentic people but people doing soul music doing you know african american music black music from a, a place of whiteness right and one of the reasons they did in fact you'll hear mccartney say that phrase plastic soul man or whatever plastic soul man uh, right before they jump into the recording of I'm Down, if you go onto the anthology, one of the versions of I'm Down, you'll hear the studio chatter, and he says Plastic Soul. So they had this phrase even as early as the help sessions, right? And one of the reasons they did this was because they're good friends. There was no real rivalry there. The Stones were very clearly modeling a lot of their music on blues music, soul music. But to them... And, you know, I don't know how far this criticism went or was just a passing thing, but to them, they felt that the Stones were kind of putting on a persona of being more authentically blues, when clearly they were also just a bunch of white guys from Britain. And their comment with the, with rubber, plastic soul or rubber soul was that they were owning up to the fact that we're just four white guys from Britain who have a reverence for this music, who want to... Uh, integrate and incorporate a lot of it into what we're doing. Not It wasn't every song on the album or after that, but so much of it was influenced by that. So it's kind of cool, you know, the, that they were able to own up to that reality. I think that's important to, it, it's one of the reasons why the, mo- the artists I respect the most are the ones who acknowledge that they are, borrowing or stealing and repurposing and not trying to be that thing or be that person. It just, I I think that that comes from a greater place of honesty. Uh, There's so many bands running through my head right now that, that go, that fall on both sides of that line. That's, that's a different, uh, (laughs) I think I actually did that episode with illusion and music, but that's not for this episode. The cover of Rubber Soul, which was an accident, they they were stretched out for some reason. They said, "Hey, I like it that way." But that stretched out photo, would I think they realized it was a perfect representation of what they were doing in the studio. That kind of yes, this is them, but it's distorted in some way. It didn't have to doesn't have to be perfectly true to life anymore. The way their earlier albums could have been easily you know more or less replicated on stage. It could be, you know, filled with things that could only at the time uh, be done in the studio. So that kind of distortion of reality, perfect representation of this album. Another real comment here, which shows you the difference. Previous albums, recording time. Please, please me. 
took around 25 hours to record total. That was their This Is What We Sound Like Live album. You know, The following four albums, Straight Up Through Help, took around 50 to 60 hours of recording time, right? And then this one, almost 100 hours in the studio for the same number of songs, really, 14 to 16, if you count the non-album tracks, I think that's about what it is, stretched over four weeks. And that, that 100, was really only them dipping their toe in the water, saying, well, let's let's play around a little bit and see what happens. And once they realized, oh, crap, this is working, they get to Revolver, which I will get to later, and that would take over 280 hours to record over four weeks. Uh, yeah, that four weeks for the for Rubber Saw, I think that, I, I don't know if that was true. I might have mixed the two up. But just to say that they more than doubled their recording time on that. And other than, uh, you know, a couple of albums later on, I think I want to say Magical Mystery, Pop, or maybe it's Yellow Submarine and Let It Be, which were lesser, all the other albums came in at well over this, well over 300 hours of recording. So they really started, to me, hit the stride in terms of how to use the studio even more so, you know, once they passed through Rubber Soul. Uh, This also, Rubber Soul, was the first time that they crafted an album as a complete work. All the other albums had been either this is what's in the movie or a collection of what they were doing at the time, uh, a bunch of singles or non-singles or whatever, good songs put together to have to be album length, but with not uh, too much thought of, well, is this, is this a sequence? What's the feel? And they really wanted to do this album beginning to end as a, as a complete work and to establish the fact that we take for granted now, or maybe we don't, we used to, I think we still understand it, even if it's sort of subconsciously with streaming and everything that an album as a whole is an artwork in and of itself separate from the individual songs and is worth consuming as a whole, as, a, as one opus. And Rubber Soul was really where they started to think along those lines, and I think we have an idea of where it led, which I will lead to later on. And they were really, and that's why they consider this such a super transitional album. They still had quite a few elements of what they were doing on Help and before that, but but had quite many more elements of what would end up on albums like Revolver and Sgt. Pepper's. So just really kind of transitioning out of their early period. We often call this the middle period. I've seen people break their career into maybe three periods or four periods. I, I am doing five, and I have good reasons for that. And each, as I do each uh, episode of this, I'll explain why. But I think these are three albums in particular, and then the Yesterday and Today really are of a piece in terms of their approach and where they were in, in the in the band and their lives. They were making music for themselves primarily at this point. Yes, they they were still very well informed by you know how to get the music across to audiences. They wanted the songs to work. It wasn't just kind of, you know, sitting in the studio saying, well this is good to me, you know, like they really wanted to make it as they've always done into songs that could be consumed, uh, you know, by a wide, as wide an audience as possible. But first and foremost, they were crafting music to satisfy themselves more so than ever. Uh, yeah. And this really is, it's their first true chamber pop album. And if you don't know what that is, so that's 
pop music that has more intricacies to it. And if you, in fact, again, why I say like precursors to Rubber Soul, they had that. A song like Yesterday would be a perfect example of like a, of like a kind of proto-chamber pop song. Chamber pop often uses uh, instruments other than bass, drums, and guitar and things like that. It has kind of more of an intimate feel to it. Uh, and you think of a band from, let's say, from the 90s and 0s like Bell and Sebastian, I would consider them chamber pop and there's so many others uh, through the years who would do that. The Kinks would dabble a little bit in chamber pop. This was their first true foray into that, but also includes soul music and folk music. They were heavily influenced by, of course, Dylan, but also the Birds were a big influence of them at this time. And so enamored still of American music as they had been from the very beginning, even from before they called themselves the, the Beatles. We forget, I think, that this album, which is now super revered, um, one of the probably top, you know, anybody who makes a top three or five list of Beatles albums, they probably put this in it at some place. I would be my guess. We forget that it was not fully well received critically. Uh, and to me, it, it's because it was similar to Dylan's switch over to electric, going from folk acoustic, quote unquote, authentic sound to electric whereas he knew I both were equally as authentic and inauthentic. And if you want to do something different, do something different. That's what the Beatles were expected to do. The kind of like, you know, teeny bopper pop rock with some ballads thrown in and lovey dovey ballads. And this was such a switch over uh, both in terms of sound approach and feel and even in the songwriting, in a lot of ways, fleshing out some of the darker and more negative ideas that they had on earlier albums, that I think it took a lot of the critics by surprise, and they said, "Well, I don't know what they're doing now," and they're, you know, they're kind of retreating into themselves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, you know, we know how that turned out, and of course, this album was a huge influence, or as they say in um, in New York, huge influence of uh on brian wilson it really prompted him to do pet sounds he was listening to a song or listening to the rubber souls one of his favorite albums when he first listened to it he said that uh god only knows just completely popped into his head and it was it was because of the influence of this album which in turn pet sounds influenced the beatles to do sergeant pepper and and when you say these things it's not oh uh, I was going to do something completely different and this changed my course. This is one of the main influences or the impetuses that that prompted artists, an artist to do what they did next. So there were many other reasons why Brian Wilson wanted Pet Sounds to be Pet Sounds. Many other reasons why the Beatles wanted Sgt. Peppers to be what it is. But th- there is a line from Rubber Soul to Pet Sounds to Sgt. Pepper that we can follow. Uh Interesting to me, and I mentioned this slightly before, there's a ton of relationship contention and negativity in the lyrics, questions, accusations, even warnings, threats. In fact, to me, of all the 14 songs, and I want to say even including the, yeah, not even including the non-album tracks, which I'm excited to get to later, the only truly fully happy song is Michelle. That's the only one. There's nothing in there in those lyrics that are bittersweet or twisty in any way, whereas every other one is either all negative or 
hoping to be positive with a little bit of doubt or 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 shadow thrown thrown into it and that i think was very deliberate again was them not saying well we just need to make love songs to please everybody we're going to we'll work with what we feel uh, which was a you know i mean dylan was a huge influence on that as well uh and and i will say this that this period in particular but especially rubber soul and revolver have been a huge influence on my approach in the studio and you know i take it for granted because so many other artists have done that since then and i'm sure there are other artists that have influenced me in the same way but i have to go back to this band being the you know top band on my list as when i go into the studio i i generally have you know two overall objectives one is to bring out the truest essence of the song with as much you know feeling and dynamism as i can and two is to honestly do whatever the hell i want with the sound whatever makes whatever makes it interesting to me you know in fact it like uh bitter bittersweet in both the music and the lyrics i do that often deceptively straightforward some songs uh, i try to make songs easy to digest but yet if as you are digesting them you taste the rich flavors uh how do you like that metaphor uh eclectic the rubber soul went all over the place, which is something that I really like to do. Even acerbic and biting at times in the lyrics and in sometimes even in the sound. Cleverly funny, just throwing in little, uh, you know, clever lines and, and, and being a little, you know, more insouciant, uh, but also soft and unafraid to go wherever. And that that's pretty much sums up really everything I've done, especially, you know, with Wreck with the band wreck now as far as the tracks on this album ooh man so it opens with drive my car this and i again i do the uk versions because they're the authentic albums and we'll get into some interesting stuff later about what happened with the beatles uh and that is probably i for a while i said that this song was my favorite beatles song and again my favorite of anything changes over and over but I, I think it may still be. And it's because it's it's a story song, you know, and it's clever as hell. It's talking about driving a car that doesn't exist, you know, and also, yeah, so even, uh, yeah, that the, the job that the guy was supposed to have, like all this, it's very, it, it's like bait and switch, it's sleight of hand. And yet the music is very straightforward, but funky as well. There's a bass intro that when we started playing this live, I really loved because it comes in on a beat that doesn't seem like it should. Like the guitar starts first. When he hits that high note, that's when the bass starts. And it's probably at the right key because I, I never picked the right key uh, organically. But that that I, you know, was like, how great already establishing we're messing around here and we're going to make it work uh norwegian wood uh, had the sitar you won't see me great you know intimate uh song again con- relationship contention nowhere man philosophical think for yourself is a very interesting george harrison um uh, composition and fun to listen to and has kind of a uh, it almost it harkens to things that would happen more in like 66 67 68 with that uh, you know kind of 
that really like a serious chamber pop sound and yet with a fuzz bass because Paul was like I'm screwing around with this we're gonna make the word is a song that I wish more people knew it is awesome to play live especially if you can kill the three-part harmony and it just drives and that you know organ or harpsichord sound whatever it is um, uh, awesome like just the whole thing about it Michelle ends the first side classic I believe that was their biggest hit off this album in the States. What Goes On was Ringo's first songwriting credit. It's country. And I think it's a real kind of like finger to people to say, we're going to open side two with a country song and Ringo song. And that's how it's going to be. It's what we're feeling. It's really, really making a statement there because I think... Now we just think, what's the first song in an album? And that's what, you know, that that can be ultra important. And very often, uh, artists will just put their single as the first song. Thankfully, not all artists do that. They try to, again, craft an album as an album and say, well, what's a real good opener? doesn't necessarily have to be the single. Uh, but, you know, way before, uh, before CDs and all, side twos were very important too. So this was like a real twist. Girl, you know, you think of it uh, as in some ways a love song but boy you listen to those lyrics and there's a lot of confusion in there i'm looking through you such a light pretty song and very acerbic i think in my life absolute classic weight is like a perfect representation of the lennon and mccartney working together style where it's generally a lennon song with a certain drive to it and then paul comes in uh you know, with the middle eight, they call it. The bridge is what I would call it. Such a frequent template. It happened in a day in the life. There were times where Lennon contributed a middle eight to McCartney's songs. I feel as though you ought to know that I've been good, as good as I can be. And if you do, trust in you. Know that you will await for me. That was Paul's part. Uh, if I needed someone to me, it was George's first truly great song. It's a song, again, just like with the word, I wish more people knew fun to sing too but i think that this is where it was like that it was like and and nothing not to take away from think for yourself but this is where ah yeah george can actually write this is great and then run for your life probably one of the darkest songs the beatles did uh i had been working on a cover of this during the weird objective sessions and just didn't really know where to go with it you know, I, I had an idea for it. It wasn't working. I thought about changing it up, but I know that's been that's been done in a different way. So I'm still going to complete it at some point. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's basically an outtake from the Weird Objective Sessions. And then the non-album singles from this period, We Can Work It Out and Day Tripper, which, yeah, now I know the bass on Day Tripper. <laughs> I was playing in in one location and then I looked at our one of our guitarists and where he was playing and I'm like, oh, that's even better. So now I can I'm, I can pretty much knock that out uh, and we could work it out. It's always been one of my favorite songs. My faves really on this album were from the from the first side would be the opening track, of course, Drive My Car and then three, which is You Won't See Me, four. Uh, nowhere man and then six the word it's not that i don't like the others but i'm talking about favorites for side two it's really um it's really girl i'm looking through you 
Yeah, I mean, in my life, I've done that. I've done the the that kind of fake harpsichord, sped up piano, you know, solo and everything. But I think it's uh, it's a former favorite. Wait, uh, if I needed someone for sure, and uh, run for your life, and then y- we can work it out for sure. Uh, as far as non-album singles, and I mean, Day Tripper's fine as well. It's kind of silly to pick favorites this period for me or for the, from this album, and especially from the next album. Which brings me to a segue, which is after a couple months after this album was released, they were working on the follow-up, Revolver, and they they had these series of interviews that were published in a magazine. I forget the magazine and. There was the famous Jesus comment that Lennon made. This was in March 66. And I think, and I don't know if the words are exactly right, uh, but uh, I will say that the quote is essentially, Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. So then it was, you know, paraphrased to we're bigger than Jesus now. And, oh, talk about the hue and cry, both in Britain, but especially, especially in the United States and especially in the southern United States, the Bible Belt. How dare you say that, et cetera, et cetera. Similar to what we do today when, when we take what someone says, we reduce it to a soundbite, and then we judge that soundbite without any of the nuance and context that it was likely meant to have. Uh, you know, even in uh, Lennon's apology, he was forced to make and even said, I don't really think I should apologize, but if it'll have people feel better, I will, something like that. He, he, he said, you know, he has got nothing against it, you know, like, and I mean, listen, if you, if you understand two things, the Bible and human history, then you will know that he, he was right about followers twisting it. One of the criticisms that Jesus had about the religious people of his day was that they were twisting teachings to their own design. And we see that all the time now where, you know, if you really study what Jesus says, you get, you know, this kind of inclusion and love and acceptance and and, uh, help the poor and help people and all of that. Everyone is equal. Everyone should be accepted. But somehow the, the most fundamentally religious people turn all of that into hatred of others and, and distrust and disgust of others and putting down others, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to, you know, cross a certain bar to be uh, accepted into heaven, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that what John was saying was basically that. And he was also saying that there was the trend that religion was, was kind of, you know, diminishing and yeah, it would take a much longer time, but guess what? I just read an article that there have been tons of Catholic parishes that have had to close down, you know, and I'm not saying this is good or bad, but that there have been times in history where religions have not kept up. They've lost touch with what even their most devoted followers want. And then you get a split. You get people going in the direction of fundamentalism, and then you get the people going uh, in the direction of I'm leaving that religion because it, it doesn't represent me anymore, you know. And 
that to me is what you know one of the main things and he also you know put down yeah i mean rock and roll may die too and i mean you know i think that that's going to take a lot longer not neither one is is ever going to be out you know forever and that kind of ebb and flow and rise and fall will happen pretty much until humans stop existing but again he wasn't passing judgment he was making i mean he was passing judgment on people who twist scriptures and stuff and I'm a former, you know, like a lapsed Catholic, I guess you can call it, uh, agnostic lapsed Catholic. But so I know more than the average person, but don't claim to be religious. But he was commenting really on the cult of personality. Uh, yes, that is a song name that we need to be careful. We don't deify celebrities, you know, like, oh, well, shoot. Now we're just a bunch we're just some lads from Liverpool. And now all of a sudden we're more popular than Jesus, you know. Why? We're just ordinary people doing something, you know, and not just because it's misplaced, but because it can backfire, you know. Oh, by the way, ordinary people, uh, another another song name. And that to me, really, the reason I brought this up was because of that kind of gotcha mindset where someone says something, you're like, oh, they said something controversial. Now, I'm going to call it out and I'm going to, you know, quote unquote, cancel them. I don't like that word because it's become a buzzword that people use in dumb ways, but it's the, it's an expedient here. And you get my idea that give, you don't, you don't really want to listen. And I'm going to be doing a future episode on conversation and stuff like that. And you know what it means to have a true exchange, etc. But, you know, I think that, and one of the comments that I'm going to make is the, the modern world whatever you, that means to you, whether it's the 1600s or the 1960s or today, is always what we make it. And that includes the internet. And if we want to make the internet just uh, you know a bunch of people shouting at each other and not trying to understand, that's what it will become. If we want to make it a place where there's conversation, then it can become that. You know, We're really listening to each other. But of course, that didn't happen. And album Beatles albums were burned and shows had to be canceled. And they, you know, said some things about the U.S. that they really, you know, showed that their love of the U.S. was being seriously challenged by thick-headed people, you know, and, the, and their actions and reactions. And that may have contributed to them not wanting to tour anymore because it was just more trouble than it was worth. The Ku Klux Klan marched against them and I think whatever burned something. I don't know. In fact, in the same set of interviews that Lenin said that, McCartney said about the U.S., it's a lousy country where anyone black is a dirty N-word. And, you know, what he was saying was that's how black people were looked on by everybody else. And it was disgusting. And they were notorious, well known for not playing to segregated audiences and stuff like that. So it was, you know, kind of a more of an eye opener than maybe they wanted about, well, here are these you know, this music that they revere from the, the people who have just struggled and, 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 and you know, triumphed in so many ways and, and artistically and etc. And they're still into what they consider to be the modern era being treated like this, you know. And the worst upshot of the whole of it was that this might have been the sticking point, this John Lennon comment from Mark David Chapman, who was a conservative Christian who hated Lennon's comment and thought he, I guess, needed to be put in his place. But the best upshot, weird, and I'll say it, is that at some point in the future, the Beatles were eventually accepted and 
you know, sanctioned by the Catholic Church. <laughs> and overall in the world, a very small number of people still have any problem with the Beatles or as, as, a, as a group, as individuals, with their music. Why, you know, and again, why go into this at all? Because I don't think we're any different today. I think that there are still plenty of people who have said things that on the surface seem controversial and, and are maybe meant to spark conversation. Uh, and then they get, you know, completely uh, vilified. But I think we have the capacity to actually figure things out better and, and go deeper. You know, words are important and I've said that they are. How you say what you say matters, but more important than that are ideas and our patience and attention and curiosity and mutual respect to be able to suss out what someone is actually trying to say. I think that's really important because that's giving people the benefit of the doubt. And if you find out that, you know, what they were trying to say really sucked, then, you know, lay into it. That's fine. But figure it out first, you know. All right, back to music. Yesterday and Today was released in June 1966. It was the last U.S. album that was different in any way from the U.K. albums. And it's funny because these are, to me, often lesser albums, unless you grew up with them or whatever, because that's, oh, that's the sequence I know. Those are the songs I know from that album. So to you, that, of course, you'd like it. But it wasn't the, what they intended. You know, this is not how they wanted the albums to turn out. And what they would always do was take some of the songs from an album and then some non-album singles and throw some other stuff together and boom, an album. Because that way they could make more albums, basically. Do it their own way. But what's weird is, to me, Yesterday and Today may end up, may have ended up being their most eclectic album. Because it's pulling from this transitional period and it's pulling from stuff before Rubber Soul, Rubber Soul and even after Rubber Soul. So it's spanning this like couple year period where their music was not intended to be cohesive over that stretch, but put all onto one album. And, and I find that it may be the album to start with if you want to get a sense of what did the Beatles sound like in their strongest period because it is sort of a, a hodgepodge sampler that has that eclectic, you know. Now, the, the interesting thing about Yesterday and Today that I was always fascinated with as a kid was that the original cover, which is called the Butcher cover, was them with like, in like, I think Butcher costumes with uh, baby dolls and head, the head off and stuff like that. It's on my graphic. If you look, I have the three main albums and then I have both covers of Yesterday and Today because what happened is they had to recall the album because of protests. And there were a couple of claims uh, or theories as to why they did that album. And the first was, or that they, I think they may have said this, that part of it was it was a, a protest against the Vietnam War and the butchering of humans and, and uh, you know, women, women and children and frankly anybody, uh, but especially people who were not fighters and all and the things we know about the Vietnam War and war in general. So that was their protest. But also it might have been a protest against the U.S. record companies, quote unquote, butchering their U.K. albums and turning them into whatever they wanted to be and not what the Beatles intended. And especially in this period when they were creating albums as a whole. So it's interesting. Look at my graphic or look up Beatles yesterday and today butcher cover, and then look at the subsequent cover, which is 
there's a big like steam, steamer trunk, I think, that Paul's sitting in and they're standing around and it's totally fine. But it's just, it's kind of cool that they were willing to be like, all right, you know what? This is our U.S. album. We don't care as much about these other than we want the U.S. to hear it, but we're kind of sick of what the companies are doing to it. And we want to make a statement. We're going to make this statement. And at the same time, they're smiling and having fun because they know the whole thing is ridiculous. And on that album, they pulled from uh, Help, the tracks Yesterday and Act Naturally. And uh, that they were, well, actually, they were A and B sides of a single, uh, you know, the single, non-album track, whatever. They pulled from Rubber Soul, Nowhere Man, and What Goes On, plus Drive My Car, and If I Need It, someone they put on the non-album tracks day tripper and we can work it out they also put on i'm only sleeping dr robert and your burke and sing from revolver so again that's what i'm saying they pulled from all these you know like three different periods really or three different albums certainly uh and yeah and that's it i have some other information here you can go ahead and look it up to me this one holds a special place in my heart because my dad bought of course the you know you weren't buying imports back then unless you had a lot of money or could figure out how to do it. My dad loved the Beatles and he has every single album, but he has every single U.S. album. As I said in the previous episode where his version of Help, the U.S. version, has the you know pseudo James Bond soundtrack music on it, which I fell in love with. This Yesterday and Today, I think I probably know that sequence for years better than I knew any of the UK albums and it has so many great songs on it as I mentioned it starts with the same song drive my car I'm only sleeping nowhere man Dr. Robert yesterday act naturally uh the U.S. albums were also shorter so that was it for side one side two was and your Birkin sing if I needed someone we can work it out what goes on and day tripper really short second side really and I don't have to mention favorites because it's not technically a real album theirs which brings me to revolver later that year in august 1966 which you know as i mentioned huge leap in recording time 280 hours or so you can hear on early versions of some of these songs on the anthology how they were so in the mode of not settling for okay this is a good song and this is a good way to do it we're going to find the best way to do it, the most interesting way to do it, the most innovative way to do it, and a way to do it that brings out the things we want to bring out and that incorporates, you know, and steals and integrates or whatever you want to call it, the, the, the influences that they wanted to bring out as well. Uh, when you think of uh, Got to Get You Into My Life, the way it started out with that droney organ and this uh, break where they're doing like a three-part harmony, I need your love, repeated thing, and it had a much more meditative feel, and then he turned it into a more of a soul thing. You can see that they, yeah, they just kept pushing it until they found exactly what what they wanted, you know. And again, I I do this. I, I do it often. I, I will record a song, and it might be fine the way it is, but then I say, well, no, that's not what I hear in my head. You know, sure, let that be the acoustic version or some other version, but what I know this song is meant to be is something different. And, you know, to varying degrees of uh, acceptance, I will say, that there are some people who prefer the simpler versions, totally fine. And But that's, again, why I identify with this period so much, because while I still want a song to work well and sound good and be organic, I want it to sound the way I want it to sound. Uh, the perfect example of where I was sort of 
50-50 on it was a song from uh, the Sunshine Seminar, Up All Day, which was, is really just a very simple love song that uh, I originally recorded as a pretty simple love pop song. And then I uh, obscured it to a point where it had sort of a dreamier feel to it and the some of the backup vocals sound like they're underwater a little bit and to really make it, you know, the drums have an echo on it, on them in some places. And some people like that version better. Some people like the, you know, original kind of stripped down version better. I was going to pick that for my spotlight song for the end of this, uh, but I've decided on a better one, which I'll get to. So many innovations on Revolver. And, and you know, so, you know, cool that... Well, I'll talk about that later, but they had tape looping. They had backward sounds that the, some of the, the double tracking and things they were doing, uh, you know, using this uh, device that makes your voice sound like it's doubling itself, which we do we can do with like a chorus and things like that now, or just honestly copy and paste. I think if I had to say, and this is a question I'll ask you at the end, I've been trying to answer this for years and finally sat down and studied. I think... Rubber Soul is a slightly better album. I'm sorry. I think Revolver is a slightly better album than Rubber Soul. And there's a good reason for that. They took what they were doing on Rubber Soul and extrapolated it and took it to the nth degree. They made it the fullest it could be. They figured out, oh, we're not just experimenting with is this how we want to approach music? We do want to approach it this way. So we're going to full tilt. And I think it's the peak of that. Uh, that that this album is the peak of their studio experimentation in many ways, peak the peak in general. But and they will say this. I think George said it. Some other that they really was like a double album. Rubber Soul and Revolver could have just been a double album. And the reason, one of the reasons why I think this was a peak was because it was their sweet spot between. They're starting that transition with Rubber Soul, and they're going all the way off the ranch on Sgt. Pepper, Magical Mystery Tour, Yellow Submarine, and all that stuff. Uh, so I think, and I've, because I always like that period in an artist's career where they're, they're retaining some of their earlier elements, but, but, but exploring and getting good at some of the newer elements. And it might take a couple albums and they get there. Sometimes, when artists go too far in a different direction, uh, I, I, I kind of, they, I'm law that's lost on me and other times it works even better. You know, uh, I think this album also has a more balanced mix of positive and negative, more balanced mix of seriousness and playfulness. To me, this is this whole period, especially this album is when they were the most Beatlesy. This is when they were really working the most closely together and were the most integrated on every level in terms of their lives and as friends and as artists and people writing music together and crafting music together. And of course the artwork is, I think one of the first psychedelic album covers and you know, it's black and white and whatever we take it for granted. But if you study it, it's really damn trippy and it's way more kind of out there than the stretched out, you know, photo of rubber soul but kind of still more organic and heartfelt than the i think kind of commentary tongue-in-cheek of the sergeant peppers album uh the album title is a soft pun it wasn't really meant to mean anything super deep other than oh a revolver can be a gun 
but it can also be the album that's spinning around and around revolves. You know, this, this album you're listening to is a revolver, you know, that it, it it's similar to what Lennon would do with a lot of his lyrics, which he commented on later, which is people want to find deeper meaning in, in X or Y, whether it was Paul is dead or some other thing, but generally he was just goofing. And I think this album sort of reflects that. It can have a deeper meaning, but really it was kind of goop. This is also the last album that contains songs that they played live before they quit for that period and obviously returned to the rooftop later on. Uh, I think Paperback Writer was one of them, you know, which is not on the album, but it's from that period. And I, I think one of the songs from the album as well that they did live in their concerts in 66 before they stopped touring. Let's get to the tracks. Taxman, okay. Now Harrison has arrived, gets to open the whole freaking album. And it's partly because they knew what a perfect opener. I don't know. I think this is probably one of the top 10 perfect album openers in the history of albums ever. You know, uh, Eleanor Rigby, again, chamber pop in the tradition of yesterday, but even more so. It's somehow still rock because of an approach and an attitude, but doesn't really sound like it and doesn't use any rock instruments. It's just the, the, the you know, string uh, ensemble and their vocals. And it's very quintessential of Paul's bent uh, of writing narrative songs, uh, third person, that they're really not about his life. He, he has gotten personal. He got personal subsequent to that in, ma- in many ways. But he's even said that his favorite way to write music is more as a narrative, telling stories. Less personal, but still this in particular, very affecting, just the loneliness and despair and all of that. And you can play it as a band. We've played it as a band before, and it still works. Uh, I'm Only Sleeping is a companion to me to I'm So Tired. And two of my favorite songs of Lennon's and of the Beatles and under, you know, underrated songs to me. And this one is it just that dreamy loping uh, rhythm. It's the perfect way to produce a song with this meaning, with the, I'm, the content that it is. Uh, Love You Too is, is a Harrison first full Eastern music composition. And for a track deliberately written in, a, in an arrangement and style and, uh, and structure, not of Western music and not necessarily pandering to hooks and things like that, it's still damn hooky. It's surprisingly catchy, actually. And, you know, uh, bands, a lot of other bands would pick up on this where they would have clearly very Western elements on top of very Eastern elements. And it's probably my favorite of the of any of the sitar songs of the Beatles is this song. Uh, it just works. Uh, Here, There, and Everywhere, great song. I know so many people love it. Yellow Submarine, People Forget, was on this album first before it blew up and became a separate thing. She Said, She Said is one of my personal favorites. I've done acoustic covers of this many, many, many times. I performed it with the band as well. Uh, Good Day Sunshine, we just started performing last year, and it, and it kicks. Um... And I and your bird can sing. I mean, think of all the harmony on both the vocals and guitar of that song. For no one is, again, just a real meditation and a reflection, but but also from a third person, you know that that Paul created. Doctor Robert, 
was always one of my favorites because it was a kind of a sneaky song. You know, it's about a guy providing drugs or whatever. And yeah, it has just a real kind of uh, jaunty, funky beat. Uh, I Want to Tell You is absolutely one of my favorite George songs. And I love singing this. I love the, you know, so many songs fade out. How many songs fade in? This is one of them. Was it, I think, their first one? There may have been songs before this that faded in, but there was no question that this was a deliberate decision. And we want to mess with this. We're going to fade it in. And then Got to Get You Into My Life. I talked about it a little earlier, but I want to say this. Earth, Wind, and Fire did a cover of this in 1978 for the movie Sgt. Pepper, which is a great, kitschy, fun movie. BGs and people like that. I think Peter Frampton. I don't know. Uh, this song got to get you into my life. First of all, that Earth, Wind, and Fire version just kills. It absolutely kills. There are so many artists who have done amazing cover versions of the Beatles, and this is probably in the top five. Uh, and I think it was prompted in part by a resurgence of this song's popularity because guess what? This was not released as a single in 1966. It wasn't released as a single until 1976 as part of a reissue album. And when it was released as a single, 10 years after it came out, it reached the top 10. And then ending with Tomorrow Never Knows, that incredibly experimental meditative song, which that uh, beat every now and then has popped up in other bands' uh, songs, including a song by the uh, Beauty and Sadness by the Smithereens and so many others. It's such a distinctive beat. It's one of those like, oh, we have to forget how underrated Ringo is as, you know, a drummer. Uh, and then the non-album uh, tracks, uh, the double A side, yeah, I forget if this was a double A side, Paperback Writer and Rain. They both honestly knock just, and I mean, oh my God, like Paperback Writer, I've done live and it's it's still scorching to me. It's, it's, it's relentless. It's incessant. And Rain is a song that's goofy and fun and experimental. I think it has some backward talking and all that stuff. They're both so revolutionary and so representative of this period and two of my favorite Beatles songs, period. And two of the first Beatles music videos that I remember seeing, they weren't their first, they did a bunch before, especially for the movies and stuff, promotional videos they called them. But these were the two I remember because they were in color and they had that kind of music video feel to the way they were put together. And my favorites for this album are... All 16 songs, the 14 on it and the two non-album tracks. There's no reason to pick. I can't pick. Oh, I'm not going to leave this song behind. And that's how I know that I prefer this album to Rubber Soul. That's how I know that it's a slightly better album than Rubber Soul. Uh, I may be leaning towards this turning into my favorite one now. I don't know. I'll let you know in a future episode. Uh, you know, I have to set aside, when I set aside that there are essential tracks on every single album, the Beatles and any good artist. And you're judging it as an album as a whole. How does it work? That's when I knew, okay, I can, I can make this judgment, you know, a question I'll ask you later. Because people constantly say, is Rubber Soul album a better, better than Revolver or whatever? That's how I was able to make that answer. You know, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, May, 1967. To that date, it was the longest break they took between albums. Uh, pretty pretty long break for them. And so, you know, that I mean, that was by design. 
And of course, all the work they put into it, 300 plus hours and, and all of that stuff and the shifts they were making in their approach and McCartney kind of taking over, taking the reins from Lennon and, and you know, creating more of the music on this album than he had on and any other album and more than anybody else on that album. It's also the first of my favorites. So far back as I can remember, a friend of mine from across the street, we would go up into his bedroom and listen to this album in particular. And I think it was my dad's copy over and over and over. So I knew it back and forth. I knew the artwork and the insert and all that stuff. It was for years, my favorite album. And I think for years, the world's favorite Beatles album. And there've been certainly detractors and other reasons why people say one or the other. Cause my second favorite as I got older was Abbey road. And in some ways, I still think that may be their best album overall, even though, you know, like I've said before, help is so strong on, on, uh, you don't really realize how strong it is. And, you know, rubber uh, revolver, super, super strong, but Sergeant Pepper has always been ranked as one of the, blah, blah, blah. It's too much all already said about it. It's revolutionary tapped into the zeitgeist. It, you know, it's a concept album. It's not the first. I talked about that in, in the uh, crooner episode, how Frank Sinatra did concept albums in the fifties and, and, and everything. And there were a couple handful prior to that, but it was the one that really kicked off a concept album could, could be both progressive and pop, both artistically and commercially successful. That's why it was such an influence. And also that it just hit the mark on the culture in ways that most music had not before or since. And so, yes, it deserves the praise. And at the time, it brought some critics back around the Beatles who started to understand, oh, they're an art band in a lot of ways now. They're, they're using more influences and doing whatever they want. And those other two albums were, in their minds, leading up to this masterpiece. Now, I will say still that their peak of this era is Revolver. Not because there aren't great songs on Sgt. Pepper's, but because it was at them at their most collaborative. It was the most representative of them being Beatles. It was even more, I think, eclectic than uh, Sgt. Pepper's. More uh, and more uh, straightforward, yet with still kind of weirdness and experimentation in there. And it's not to say that Sgt. Pepper's is overrated because that'll go up and down, you know, through history. But that that's, I really think, as far as some what some critics might say about uh, Sgt. Pepper's, you know, not deserving as much of the praise as it has gotten, that to me might be one reason why. And it really did solidify the idea, finally, once and for all, that albums matter. That albums as an as a work of art, not just singles, as a collection of, of of songs, they matter, and that is you know not coincidental that from this point on, including this album, the UK and US versions of the Beatles were exactly the same. Uh, I mean, I think there might be a variation on Magical Mystery Tour. I can't remember. Oh, no, they were just released slightly differently. But yeah, they were like, first of all, we have all the control we want. This is how we want it. But also, this is an artistic statement, and it's got to stay this way. 
I am not going to talk about drug influence except to say that you can come up with a ton of great ideas under different influences, but the best work is made sober. Perfect example. Ernest Hemingway, terrible drunk, never wrote drunk, you know, uh, to me, bands who create and play when they're high, you have to be high to actually appreciate that music, you know, or in that frame of mind, even if it's a natural high, whatever you want to call it. If you take an idea, it's sort of that, that old, you know, uh, cliche, I had like the greatest idea and I figured out like the, the secrets of the universe and I, and I turned it into this like, you know, combination of like TV show and album, except it doesn't use like sound or video, you know, and then you wake up and you're like, I have no idea what any of that meant. And it's insane. It's why, but, but some of those ideas end up being boom, holy crap. I'd never have come up with that. But then in a sober state, you know what to do with it and you know how to bring it across to the audience. And then the other thing I'll say about this is that so many bands were influenced by this period and this album being so big, this is the one that's often name-checked, even though Rubber Soul and Revolver, equally as much by so many different artists, especially singer-songwriters who create their own bands, you know, like you think of like Tame Impala and management and people like that, even badly drawn boy the whole elephant six collective and you know that and i think part of what is there were bands that would do this psychedelic thing at the same time and certainly much later who went so far out that it was kind of hard to bring some of that music back like i always think of as much as i'm intrigued by a lot of what pink floyd does and when you talk about the sid barrett era where they were really you can see them that late 60s kind of psychedelic feel there was still a cohesiveness to a lot of the songs that Sid Barrett wrote, but to go too far off that beaten path, you you come up with masterpieces eventually. You come up with amazing things, but you got to go a real distance to get there. And I think that with the Beatles, they knew how to keep it both way out and tight all all at once, you know. Uh, and I've always been more interested in sonic experimentation that has at least some groundedness, you know. Unless you want, like, you're meditating, you know, or you, you need that background music. You don't need to pay full attention to it. That's a different thing. Tracks on this album, Sgt. Pepper's uh, opener with the crowd noise. Segways uh, fade, crossfade into With a Little Help from My Friends. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I'm not talking about that song. Uh, people said enough about it. Believe what you want. Getting better. Oh, yeah. Fixing a hole. She's leaving home. Being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Side two, within you, without you. When I'm 64, lovely Rita. Good morning, good morning. Ah, man, that has a banging backbeat. If you listen to the anthology, they separate out the drums. That Ringo just went on and on and on and on because, you know, that song fades out with and then it has the animal noises. And I yes, it was based on a Kellogg's commercial, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. But it's a, it's like a paperback writer and how it pushes forward. When you listen to the drums, just isolated, they're hard and they're they're like double bass going on, funkiness is insane. Uh, Sergeant Pepper's reprise, which is a scorchy little fun song, and a day in the life, of course. Which I was told, shoot, man, which is it, uh, Mac? 
the opening, uh, you know, doom, it was actually meant to be a takeoff on the end piano, multi-piano chord of a day in the life. And then the non-album singles, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. And again, my favorites, I think all of them, with the exception of Within You, Without You, I've never been able to get into that. I've tried. All of these have at some point been a favorite of mine in history. But right now, right now, my favorites are Getting Better, Fixing a Hole, She's Leaving Home, you got to listen to that one. And being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, which, again, if you watch Across the Universe, the movie, there's some really fun versions of these songs on there. And then my favorites on uh, side two, Lovely Rita, oh, which I think I skipped over when I was naming songs. When I'm 64, Lovely Rita. Maybe I didn't. Uh, Lovely Rita is, is, is actually a very jarring song when you listen to it. Good morning, good morning, and Sgt. Pepper's reprise for sure. And then yes, uh, you know, a day in the life and both not album singles are great, but especially of all those, my favorites right now, again, I'll say good morning, good morning. And Sergeant Pepper's reprise. I get to sing that with the band and it's a very short song, but it really, it really pounds, you know, it's, it, it, it reminded people that the Beatles were not just doing art pop, that they still had, you know, were, were able to just break out and do straight up rock, you know, Conclusion of all this, to me, this era is a chronicle of what they could do, of the best of what they could do when they were all working together. And it's also a chronicle of what happens when that starts to change, because they were not quite as, uh, the camaraderie had waned and they weren't quite as cohesive during Sgt. Pepper's, and those stories have been told. And like I said, of all the periods I, uh, that I'm doing, five plus the sixth one will be after they broke up. I think this is their strongest across the board. There have been stronger songs in different eras, whatever. But across the board, as a taken as a whole, this is their strongest period. And again, I think Revolver, probably the peak of that. Uh, you know, this again wasn't the only area of influence for, for future bands. So many were were influenced by earlier and later periods of the Beatles. But if you've mentioned bands like a lot of what Tears for Fears did or Oasis, Elephant Six Collective, this was the period where they pulled from, you know. Which brings me to the last part of this uh, slightly longer episode. The song I'm picking for this, the Spotlight song, is a song off of uh, Symphony for the Weird, which is also on Rec Collection, the best of Rec, 2007-2020, Listen to that version, which is the link I have, and also the version I have at the end of this uh, video, which you'll hear very soon, because it's uh, remixed, remastered, and it's a song called The Accumulate. Because to me, perfect pick, representative of the influence of this period on my music, on Rex music. It It has psychedelic elements, it's floaty in a lot of ways, but it's also very grounded, it has some experimentation with certain sounds. There's a there's a weird glockenspiel thing. There's like a phasing and stuff like that. But it's also a very pretty traditional song. It's got verse, chorus, you know, and, and all that, and a solo and whatever. It's both rock and pop. It has some organic, it has a lot of organic instruments, but it also has electronic instruments. It is very personal, but it's also philosophical. It's a commentary on... Uh, 
on time, on how the more you live, the more the more things you accumulate within you, time and existence can become a weight, and you're looking for the answer as to how to lift that weight, and yet the more you learn, you realize the less you know, that that there's that infinity out there is is impossible to fully grasp uh, by any human. And yet it's a pop song, yeah. And it really exemplifies, yeah, the Beatles' influence on all my recent work. I mean, they've influenced me from the beginning, but it really perfectly fits into where they've influenced me most recently. I think most of what they've influenced in my music is how I approach the creation of it. So I can do a song that sounds absolutely nothing at all like the Beatles, but the way I've approached it, you know, in in, in pre-production and production is a very Beatles way to do it. And that's it. I mean, uh, the questions for you are any of these songs, your uh, albums, your top favorite Beatles albums. Uh, is there a song on one of these albums that's your top favorite Beatles song? And my brother, I believe, his favorite Beatles song has always been In My Life. Perfect example. Can you decide for yourself or whatever for the world if Rubber Solar Revolver is a better album or is that an impossible decision to make? And where do you rank Sgt. Pepper's? How do you feel about it? Do you think it has stood the test of time? Do you think it's even better than people say it is or not? I want to hear all these opinions because as always, my objectives here are music conversation and connection thank you and i will talk to you next week you're not so far away from the place you used to be but it feels like eternity you're not sure you got to stay Places you had to see, but it's too late, they're not what they used to be.
calling out your name in a language you don't understand. Close your eyes and take It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 